Hello, and welcome to Dementia Dialogue. My name is Lisa Loisel, and I will be the host of this special two-part podcast with guests Laura Alfaro and Danielle Alcock. Laura and Danielle both work in Indigenous health and have been involved in the Circle of Care, which is a project that addresses the needs of Indigenous caregivers of people living with dementia. Laura was the project officer at the Native Women's Association of Canada leading the project, and Danielle facilitated the talking circles during the program. Danielle has also been a caregiver for her father, who is living with dementia, for the past 10 years. In part one of the podcast, Laura and Danielle lay the groundwork for understanding dementia and the caregiving role from an Indigenous perspective. In part two, I speak with Laura and Danielle more specifically about the Circle of Care project, the process, the purpose, the outcomes, and the challenges. Thanks for joining me today. Let's listen in. My name's Laura Alfaro. I'm a project officer at the Native Women's Association of Canada, and I'm leading um, the Circle of Care project, which is a project that addresses the needs of Indigenous caregivers of people living with dementia. Thank you, Laura. And you're coming to us from BC today. I am, yes. So I live about two and a half hours northeast of Kamloops on the traditional and unceded territory of the Shikwetmek people. Thank you for that and welcome. Danielle? Sure. Yeah, my name is Danielle Alcock. Uh, so Danielle Indigenous Gawin Mashin and Kikinima Sin and Donem, Chippewa and Dunjaba, Deshka and Zibin and um, so for myself, I'm Anishinaabe Kwai and a member of the Chippewa Rima First Nation on my dad's side. And then on my mom's side are settlers from the Nova Scotia East Coast. I am a caregiver, so it's actually coming up to 10 year anniversary for me and my dad of being a caregiver for him in April. And um, for myself too, my research background has been focused on memory loss impacting female Indigenous caregivers because I realized with my own experience, I probably wasn't alone. And so that's something that I focused on. And then in my professional life, I've been working in Indigenous health for quite some time now. So um, I, my role is working in primary care, but I've also had a background working providing social support as well. Thank you. And again, welcome to you both. Thank you for, uh, for chatting with me today. So I want to lay some groundwork and uh, just chat with you, just get a better understanding of the experience of dementia and, and how dementia is understood by people in the Indigenous communities. I can go a little bit. <laughs> sure. So I think from my own experience, I didn't know anything about dementia until I had to. And I think that's that's something that's common, I think, for a lot of people who become caregivers and then especially trying to access services to find things that are culturally safe. There wasn't, and there still isn't as many options. So I know that that's something that a lot of people experience who are Indigenous caregivers, and especially there's a lot of female Indigenous caregivers, and so that's their experience as well. But trying to find those resources that are going to include your, your spiritual well-being, you know, that also goes along with your social well-being, that mental as well as that physical. And I know from my own research that rates are much higher within Indigenous communities, one of the fastest growing populations in Canada. And with the increase of people who are aging, it's something that's becoming more common. And so trying to 
find resources with more people becoming caregivers and more people living with memory loss is something that's becoming more prominent. And I find uh, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot more great research that's being done, especially by Indigenous researchers within Canada and collaborating internationally since Australia has been doing really great work for quite some time. So that's been really great because there's resources that are being made, things that can be accessed. So it's just getting that knowledge from, you know, all the research that's done and then it trickles down to actually that support for those caregivers. Part of Circle of Care, if I can just add on to that, was gathering resources and perspectives on dementia in Indigenous communities. So a lot of um, the research that was done, and this was echoed by some of the participants for this project, is that dementia in these communities is seen as um, just a part of life. So it's not stigmatized necessarily the way it is in sort of more Western concepts of dementia. It's, It's something that happens. It's part of the life cycle. Many participants have also referred to it as a second childhood. So it's something to be expected. Um, So that was also something that we found in in, in the research prior to the project is that people think of dementia or memory loss as as sort of going back to childhood, a second childhood. So that's, you know, one of the ways that it's, it's conceptualized in these communities. And those are some of the, you know, perspectives that we found um, were really important to incorporate to this project because the resources that we're developing are to address the needs of Indigenous caregivers in Indigenous communities um, specifically. So it was really, really important to have this sort of cultural background and and what does dementia mean? How is it thought of in these communities? That was, again, one of the main sort of foundational background um, things that we needed to have before starting this project. Danielle, so you're, you said you started your caregiving journey with your father 10 years ago. So how did the perception that dementia is a second childhood or it's a, a normal part of life, how did that affect your journey as a caregiver? Yeah, so with our journey as well, my dad was actually diagnosed pretty young in his 50s with alcohol-related dementia. So then it brought in that complexity of there is stigma that can be attached to it because there it is substance use, I'm trying to find harm reduction approaches within those who are working within healthcare, those specialists, and you know, just, just trying to find those really good things where people understand that, you know, being judgmental isn't going to help the situation and just trying to give as many resources as possible. And I think with the second childhood, it's actually something my dad says a lot. So for him, that's his understanding of it. And so he often will say things like, I feel like I'm going back to being a little kid, you know, and you're taking care of me. And so it is that dynamic. And I think as well as that looking at it within the life cycle, even within a lot of the discussions we had with uh, caregivers across Canada was this idea of the importance of family and the importance of community for looking after someone. And that recognition that although somebody is living with memory loss, that they still have importance, they still have value in their community, regardless of having memory loss. And so I think that's a piece of it too, is looking at it more holistically, not in terms of just the living with the illness, but also their connection to who they are, family, that community extension that goes with it. So I think that goes back to it as that childhood concept is that taking care, is that you need that support from others to be there for you as you 
are seeing yourself going back into a second childhood and being closer to the spirit world as well? I think for me, uh, I think it's important to mention the importance that elders play in the Indigenous communities. You know, they're seen as having a lot to contribute still to the communities, a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge. So their place in the community is still valued. I think that's missing from a lot of other contexts where when somebody ages, you know, they're in some ways not not as involved in, in community life, right? Um, within, yes, and but within these communities, Again, their knowledge, their wisdom, the sort of intergenerational transference of knowledge, it is extremely important. Um, And I think that's why you see the importance of being cared for in family, in community, because it's their role, their value is still acknowledged. Which is, again, completely different from a Western perspective where people are devalued as soon as you are. I've heard so many people say as soon as you're diagnosed with dementia, they start talking to your care partner, the person in the room with you, you're no longer valued as a, as a contributing member of society that you have any kind of mental capacity to to contribute in any way in your own, in your own life, in your, your own, you have no say essentially in, in what's coming next. Yeah. And I think that that's that connection to the, the spiritual aspect of, of people as well. Because often with a diagnosis, you become, your identity becomes your diagnosis. And so the personhood is, and I know this is common with a lot of people who are caregivers or those who are living with memory loss, is the idea of who you are is kind of taken over because you've been diagnosed. But I think the the best advice I've been given when, you know, just accessing support was actually an elder who said, the spirit is still there. So you need to still connect with the spirit of somebody And I think that's often missed is that the person is still there, their spirit is still there. And so it's that connecting on a different level for with people as well. So that's just been a really good reminder for me of that, you know, although there might not be remembering what we did, you know, yesterday, it's still the spirit. So just connecting with that different form of self. And that's a really important piece too, for that, my own remembrance of when those days are really tough. And so can you give me an example of, of what that would look like? How do you connect with your dad on that spiritual level? So for myself, um, so Laura knows I'm expecting and it's going to be your, the first grandbaby. And so that's very exciting. And I think that was something too that was very difficult to navigate because he's not going to remember. And so it's just still having those conversations. And I've been thinking too, I'm like, well, what is their interactions going to be like? And so I have to remember they're going to interact very differently. And I had this conversation just a few weeks ago with someone and they said, well, your dad is closer to the spirit world and that baby is too. So they're going to connect. Yeah. So I was like, that's a, that's a beautiful way to look at it because they are very close in that capacity. So they'll, they'll have a different connection. It might not be conversation based, but it will be on just a different level of understanding each other. So that's been helpful too, because I have to kind of shift away from this idea that of that connection is just verbal. It could be just communication, but people communicate in different ways. And so that's just a different way to, to understand the context and the spirit of somebody still there, even though they have memory loss. And I guess it, it I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like it, there's some comfort there in thinking about it that way. But it must be hard though, right? To reconcile, you know, this idea of a second childhood and looking at the spiritual, but yet you are seeing 
from a Western perspective, deterioration, you know, that forgetfulness. And so there's, uh, I'm seeing kind of this battle between what society thinks about dementia still and the belief of the spirituality behind dementia. And that must be hard, right? Just to reconcile that. Yeah. And I think as well that um, with, uh, with many caregivers and I know with Indigenous caregivers as well, it's it's also, you know, having the knowledge of, of what's to come about memory loss, because that's a piece too of having that, I mean, you can't be prepared always, but at least having the knowledge or having some of the resources. So, and I know Laura can, Laura, if you can kind of expand on that too, because that came up quite often. Yeah, so like, as Danielle mentioned before, uh, many caregivers are not prepared, have very little knowledge or not super familiar with dementia before becoming caregivers. So we really saw the importance of having, you know, awareness around dementia or memory loss, resources for people even before their uh, loved ones are diagnosed with it with with the condition. People express concern concerns about whether is this something that I should expect down the line. I think that's one of the difficulties with when you get a diagnosis like dementia is there's so much, you know, the research has come a long way. Obviously, it's still continuing. A lot of important work is still being done. But there are still a lot of questions surrounding things that we don't know. I think that can be really, really difficult. And, you know, one of the reasons why these resources that the Native Women's Association is trying to create are so important. The, the support network that Native Women's Association is trying to facilitate is so important is because then people can come together and find support in community, find support in each other. And I think that makes the um, uncertainty you know, it's, it's a little bit easier to cope when you know that you have a community. I was reading a lot of evaluations for the sharing circles that we, that we held. And I, I cannot tell you how many times I came across. It was, it was wonderful to know that I, I'm not alone. Like that was one of the top things that people brought up was feeling like they're not so alone. There's other people going through this. And there's a lot of comfort in that, especially given, again, all of the uncertainty around memory loss. Yeah, over the years, I've that's one of the um, biggest things when it comes to support from peers or family is that, well, generally from peers that, you know, you feel like you're not alone. You're hearing people that are having the same experiences and you're able to connect with them on a different level than you could, you know, with even, you know, secondary family members who aren't, you know, primary uh, caregivers. They just don't understand that uh, caregiving rule. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm, yeah. What are some of the other challenges from the different communities? Obviously, remote communities, you know, there's that there is that distance from direct support that you can receive. What are some other things that you've seen? Jurisdictional barriers. And <laughs> depending on you access services, depending on where you live, um, which can be really difficult, because if your community just doesn't have the resources to provide things like PSW, respite care, nursing, sometimes you're not able to access some of those services that are offered in a nearby community or town because it's the idea that, well, you live within your First Nation community, so you should access services there. And so that's a really big barrier, as well as, you know, you might want to access services outside of your community if it is a small community, you know, just for some confidentiality, or you might want to access services in your community because it feels you might know them or that cultural safety piece, but giving people the option I think is really important. 
And I know with, with long-term care, there's not a lot of long-term cares that are in First Nations communities that are led and run by them as well. And that's really important too, because then people are able to remain at home because it's not just, you know, I always like to say it's not, it's not place, it's space. It's, you know, it's that connection of where you're from, who you are. It's, you know, everything that is just kind of shaped who you are as a person and your identity and the importance of, you know, being where your ancestors are or that recognition of where you grew up. And so people having to move further away from home is really difficult because of that loss and that access to, to food and family and just what you, is familiar to you. So I think long-term care is a really big issue. So people try to keep people at home as long as they can, doing the best that they can without a lot of options or resources. I think too, several participants mentioned when a loved ones were in long-term care, they sometimes didn't have access to culturally um, safe resources. So, you know, burning of medicines or specific foods, right, that for their loved ones to bring in that wasn't allowed. So things like even just having access to being able to provide, you know, culturally safe resources, I think that was one of the challenges. I think another one of the challenges that some participants brought up was just the financial um, stress that could come with caregiving. So we had a participant whose loved one was in a a long-term care facility. So this is a British Columbia example. The caregiver lived on uh, Vancouver Island and the uh, loved one was in a care facility in the uh, lower mainland. So, you know, she talked about things like, yeah, you know, I have to take the ferry to, to go see um, my loved one. It's expensive, right? Paying for the ferry. It's, it's a whole day sort of spent getting to the person. I noticed a lot of, or a number of the participants um, said, you know, I had to leave my full-time job to become a caregiver. It just wasn't feasible for me to keep my job and care for my loved one. So that was another challenge. I do know some of the participants are able to access you know, funding, some sort of financial support for um, caregiving. Um, Some are not, some are not aware that there is even resources available to do that sort of thing. So I think moving forward, that's um, going to be one of the pieces that I think we'll be addressing is, you know, how to access these, these other supports that are out there that people might not be aware of. I want to actually jump back to the idea of long-term care. The beginning of our conversation, we were talking about the importance of family members in the the care of the person living with dementia. Long-term care is such a negative thing in a lot of communities. And I just wonder, because in the Indigenous communities, it's very important that the family be the per- be there to support. Then, you know, what, what that transition is like. When do you move the individual into long-term care? Yeah, and I can, I can kind of share our own experiences that it's, it's often, a, it's a difficult choice and you have to make it because there's just not enough resources um, to be able to keep them at home. And so that's a decision nobody should have to make is that you have to access long-term care because there aren't the resources you need as a caregiver. Some caregivers that I spoke to, their community did have great resources of having the opportunity to have respite care, nursing, PSW, long-term care home was actually very close by. So they were able to visit every day. It still was a, it was a non-Indigenous home, but they were still able to see them. And so presence is so key And that proximity to someone to be able to visit is so important for that connection. So I know 
And a lot of people we spoke to shared that long-term care is often the last option because of that understanding of that connection to family and community. And there is still a lot of fear of how someone is going to be treated in those spaces because they aren't designed or built or for Indigenous perspectives and worldviews and ways of knowing. And so that's a difficult choice. How many long-term care homes, if you know this, how many Indigenous long-term care homes are there in Canada? So I have a stat that's from 2018. Um, It's from the report of the Standing Committee on Indigenous and Northern Affairs. Um, And they shared that although there are currently 630 First Nation communities in Canada, very few communities have their own long-term care facilities. Only 53 long-term care facilities that are managed by First Nations across the country. And so that's only applicable to First Nations. That's not including um, Métis or Inuit as well. And so that's another additional barrier. Throughout our conversation, I've noticed that you both tend to use memory loss the term memory loss rather than the term dementia. Is dementia not a common term that's used within Indigenous communities? I think that's my fault. (laughs) No, uh, so I use memory loss, um, and that's just from my my own research of chatting with other caregivers, was using the term memory loss was a way to ensure that it was still that idea of the person. Because sometimes when you say dementia, then it's just that diagnosis, but you say someone living with memory loss, then it's the idea that it's something that they're living with, it's not who they are. And so that came up quite a bit. Um, But dementia is a term that is used, and it was used often within um, the talking circles and the engagement circles that we we hosted. Uh, It was just a term that I often use um, just to recognize the personhood of someone. Right, because you were recognizing what the really what the symptom is, the physical symptom, rather than you're putting a label on a person, it, it seems, yeah. And and Danielle was always really great about um, explaining this too in, in the sharing circle, saying that this was a term that she was comfortable with. And so, you know, you can use Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever term you're comfortable with. Again, it was, I think, a really good way of creating um, a safe and comfortable atmosphere for, for people to come and share. I think the term dementia can be very stigmatizing too. And so uh, other other words are, are for some people preferable for my own work because our project is funded by, by the Public Health Agency of Canada, specifically the Dementia Community Investment Fund. Um, I always use the term dementia, but yeah, taking part in the sharing circles, I also could really see the power of using a term like memory loss and how that prioritizes a person rather than the diagnosis. So I, I mean, I tend to use them interchangeably, but I definitely do see the power of using um, memory loss only because it centers a person, which I, I think is important. So in the same way, um, Danielle, you, it's more common for me to hear uh, person-centered care. You used family-centered care. So what, what does that hold within the Indigenous communities as opposed to person-centered care? I think as well that when you receive a diagnosis, it's often just the, even the medical process is just focused on the person. Mm -hmm. So it's really shifting it of like, it's actually so many people are involved in not even the diagnosis, but the the caregiving journey and that support. And so I think it's really looking at it a different way of that. It's more inclusive of those who are ensuring that their well-being is going to be paramount to the person that they're caring for. So kind of shifting it that way as well. 
And then it's also that connection that if it's the family, then it's also that connection to their, their community and that importance of, of who they are and that connection they might need. But then it's also the resources that they might need access to to provide that family-centered care. So I think it just takes it a, a step further to look at it differently is that those connections are really important throughout the journey for anybody who is dealing with memory loss. Okay, yeah, because you do hear person-centered more often. Um, and I really do feel, you know, and just in our, our discussion, that connection with family and community, and it just makes sense, right, that it's family-centered care. Because with dementia too, or memory loss, it's it's about, if it affects the whole family. And so having that, you know, being the, the key to the support of the individual, that's really important as well. I can even share to that is that, you know, of, of meeting with many, many specialists and trying to access resources, there's only one specialist who actually asked how I was doing. And it's such a small question, but it's often not asked of the person who's bringing someone to an appointment of how are you doing? And they actually provided resources because, of course, I broke down because I was like, nobody's ever asked me that. And so that's an important thing, too. Of they they were doing such a great job of that recognition of that it's it's a family that it does impact. Mm -hmm. So I always hope that other, that's something I, I like to share because I hope if there's anyone who's providing care and bringing their specialty of, you know, a medical background or a health background to maybe just ask, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. That that can be such a simple question that's really important. That is very, very important. And I think it also centers this idea that, you know, this is a collective, right, um, issue that everybody is responsible for. So it doesn't just put the responsibility on the person diagnosed or, or the person uh, caring for them, but like the whole collective. And I think that again, is, is, is so important as we are, you know, going to see rising numbers in, in, in people being diagnosed with dementia is that it's something that we all need to, you know, think about and know about and help, help out in. Right. So de definitely the, the, the community centered uh, versus you know, just the, the individual centered, I think really is a good way to think about. It's, it's a collective responsibility, not, not an individual one. This is the first Dementia Dialogue episode released under the new partnership between the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario and the Centre for Education and Research in Aging and Health at Lakehead University. The Alzheimer's Society is excited to take on a leadership role in producing and marketing our podcast, to strengthen the voice of people with lived experience of dementia. Dementia Dialogue continues to receive financial support through the Dementia Community Investment of the Public Health Agency of Canada. Please continue to follow us on Facebook. Our web address remains dementiadialogue.ca. You may also reach us through email at dementiadialogue at allson.ca. That's dementia dialogue at a l z o n dot c a.